Hello, welcome to the Lancet podcast for the issue dated August the 19th to the 25th. I'm Richard Lane, and it's great to say that we now do have a Lancet podcast. We've been doing audio summaries for six months. They are now available on our website, as they have been ever since we started back in February. But you can also now subscribe to our podcast, either here on the Lancet's website or via iTunes. Coming up, we'll be reviewing this week's issue, which has a cardiology focus, and also we'll be discussing the highlights from the September issue of The Lancet Neurology. But first of all, I'm joined by my colleague Pam Daz, who's out in Toronto at the HIV AIDS meeting, which concludes today, Friday the 18th of August. So Pam, some late breaking news from the conference. Hi, yes, I went to a late breaker session yesterday, an alarming story of a deadly strain of multidrug resistant TB which has found its way into a rural district in KwaZulu, Natal, South Africa. We know, Pam, of course, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, how HIV, AIDS and TB are very closely related and we, we've covered it in The Lancet recently and The Lancet Infectious Diseases. What's different about this strain of TB? Well, when the investigators... Um, tried to determine the extent of multidrug resistant TB in a rural hospital, they found, um, as well as multidrug resistant TB, uh, a more rarer strain of TB known as extensively drug resistant TB among their patients. Now, just to put this into context, extensively drug resistant TB is a new strain. And in the world, um, it's been reported that there are 347 isolates have been identified in the world, according to a CDC report. But in this rural district, what they found was that of the 1,500 or so patients that they looked at, that 53 of them had this extensively drug-resistant strain. So that's one in seven isolates of this rare form of TB in this one rural community in KwaZulu-Natal. That's right. So yeah. what, are the, what are the implications of that? I mean, is this just a one-off or could it spread around the area or could it crop up in other areas? Well, the evidence is, um, is that um, the authors feel there was some tr nosocomial transmission, transmission that occurred in the hospital as 64% uh, of the patients were hospitalized and two healthcare workers have died and four others are suspected of having extensively drug-resistant TB. So there is some suggestion here that the transmission occurred in the hospital and then moved out into the community where transmission continued. This finding is potentially very worrying as it could spread fairly quickly to other regions. Clearly we're going to hear a lot more about that. Thanks very much, Pam. And you can listen to Pam and other colleagues' audio reports on our website. The Lancet issue, dated August the 19th to the 25th, has a cardiology theme. This issue will be taken to the World Congress of Cardiology in Barcelona in two weeks' time. Earlier, I spoke to my colleague, Rona MacDonald, to cover some of the highlights from this issue. The Lancet team wanted to highlight Chagas' disease in this special cardiology issue because it has profound cardiology implications. First let me tell you a bit what it is. It's an infective disease, it's a parasitic disease and it normally just affects poor people in Latin America, it's endemic to Latin America, where at least 50,000 people die every year and most of them die because of end-stage congestive heart failure. An estimated 18 million are chronically infected with the parasite and about 100 million are at risk of infection. Now to put that in perspective, that's 25% of the population in Latin America. And I think what's so crucial about this disease is that most of the focus has been on prevention and vector control. So basically insecticides spraying off the houses to try and kill the insect that carries this parasite. 
whereas there's been so little on the actual treatment of the illness itself. And this illness is a very difficult one to tackle. First, because it happens in stages. The first stage is the acute stage and really has no symptoms at least if there are any symptoms it's those that are very similar to other infectious illnesses basically fever enlarged lymph nodes and maybe an enlarged liver or spleen but you get that with so many other infective diseases and then in a certain percent again you've no idea who these people are and about 30% of people it goes on to a chronic form which presents about 20 years later with heart complications and make no doubt about it these complications are so serious and as I said earlier fatal they can cause arrhythmias they can cause cardiomyopathy cardiomegaly and you know heart failure that results in death so that's why it's such a difficult disease to tackle because you don't really know when people have it you don't know who's going to go on and develop the chronic form and then once you get to the chronic form of the illness there's actually very little that you can do because currently the only two drugs available to treat this illness nifurtimox and benzidazole they can only really be given in the acute phase but if you don't know when someone's in the acute phase then how can you give them also these drugs are very toxic they cause neurotoxicity and they have to be given under specialized medical supervision and again, crucially, there's no actual drugs available for children, paediatric formulations, and it's mostly children who have the acute form of the disease, and so they'd benefit most from having it. There's also no diagno- no reliable diagnostic test. There are several different rapid lab tests that can be done, but again, the sort of quality of them varies. And again, there's, at the moment, there's no blood test to show that people have actually been cured. So in effect, you've got this massive endemic in Latin America that kills, you know, 50,000 people a year with, you know, profound cardiac um, complications. And not enough has been done to actually treat the people who have the illness. There's... I mean, WHO and the national country pro- um, programs are concentrating all their efforts in vector control. I see at massive expense, but in the meantime, missing out uh, on the people who actually have this disease and who are dying of this disease. And so the Lancet very much just wanted to raise awareness of this and put it on the map, especially, I say, in light of the World Congress in Cardiology coming up, where Shagas disease barely gets a mention on the program. And we just wanted to... Um, really say that researchers of the world you know we can't carry on with this anymore uh, and that we should really be looking into new treatments for Chagas disease. Thanks very much Rona and as you've said this is a cardiology themed issue this week can you just point out some other highlights from this week's issue for us? Absolutely our front cover this week has the quote um, the latest findings from Interheart should stimulate a redoubling of our efforts to rid the planet of the scourge of smoking And we're delighted to present the Interheart study, which is a collaboration with 52 countries from around the world, in which the authors Salim Youssef and Kuhn Teo actually found that all forms of tobacco exposure, be that smoking, chewing or inhaling secondhand smoke, actually can increase the risk of heart attack, you know, myocardial infarction, for up to three times, which is massive, obviously. They also found that... It was kind of graded, so obviously lower levels of exposure, uh, your risk was slightly less. And rather more cheeringly, they also found that once you stop smoking, that 
the risk sort of return to normal within two years, depending on how much smoke you'd actually inhaled. You'd smoked previously. That. Sure. I, what I found interesting about this study is, of course, we've known for, for, for many, many years that smoking is associated with um, heart disease. But the data here is coming from so across so many different countries, particularly developing countries, where up until now data has been virtually non-existent. Absolutely, and also looked at the way that tobacco's specifically, you know, smoked in these countries, which is different from the way it is traditionally in the West. And again, it showed that whatever, however way you smoke it or whatever you do with tobacco, it's very, very harmful. There's another study suggesting a slightly different role for ACE inhibitors. That's right. ACE inhibitors have traditionally been used for either lowering of blood pressure or for management in cardiac failure. There's a study in this week's issue that suggests that ACE inhibitors might also be beneficial in preventing rupture in patients who have abdominal aortic aneurysm. This was a case control study and we need more randomised controlled trials to be absolutely sure, but it's a promising start. And the issue of BMI, body mass index, this is quite topical, has been in the media quite a lot recently. A study here with some, some rather interesting findings, which again is, is, is basically saying that we cannot rely on BMI as an epidemiological marker. Absolutely. I mean, the inherent problems between BMI is it just measures weight and height. And uh, muscle, you know, lean body mass actually weighs more than fat. And people who are traditionally very muscly can actually have a really high BMI for example I heard somewhere that Tom Cruise is actually because he's quite small and muscly he's got a very high BMI so it's um it's not a very accurate measurement and so the authors are saying here that it's really true body fat and fat you know BMI isn't a good measurement of fat. And any other cardiology highlights just to mention for people to look up? Yeah, absolutely. As I say, we're, we're trying to go with a themed cardiology issue this week. There's also a very useful sort of costing review about cardiovascular disease prevention with multidrug um, regimen in developing countries. There's a seminar on peripartum cardiomyopathy and there's also a review on central nervous system injury associated with cardiac surgery. Rona McDonald, thanks very much. Thank you. Also published this week is the September issue of The Lancet Neurology. Earlier, I spoke to editor Helen Frankish to discuss the highlights from this month's issue for TLN. Helen, let's start with a research article that was picked up uh, in the media a couple of weeks ago when, when it was published online before the print issue, and that's looking at um, a risk score for dementia. What's this research article saying? In this study, Mia Kivapelto and colleagues from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden they studied over 1,400 people at midlife, then examined them for signs of dementia 20 years later. 61 patients had developed dementia by the time of the second examination. And what Kivapelto and colleagues found was that several risk factors that were present in middle age were linked to later development of dementia. And the risk factors included things like low education, high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels, obesity, and lack of exercise. Then they developed a risk score from 0 to 15 to predict the likelihood of a person developing dementia in later life. People with a low score, say those less than five, had just a 1% risk of later dementia, whereas those with high scores of between 12 to 15 had a 16% risk of developing dementia. So this study is interesting, but it needs further validation in other studies and other populations. 
And you pick up on this research article, Helen, in your Leading Edge editorial this month. That's right. We thought it was important to put up a caution here. One of the downsides of uh, a risk score for dementia is that a score might be misused by some to label people. For example, health um, insurance pr providers might use a high score to increase the premiums or even deny coverage for those people who are thought to be at high risk. And so, as the researchers point out in their study, this score shouldn't be used to label people as being likely to develop dementia. Instead, it should be used to identify those people who can be targeted to receive information about how they re can reduce their risk by um, modifying their lifestyle or um, pharmaceutical interventions when risk factors can't be adjusted by lifestyle alone. And what's the message for neurologists here? I, I think it would be fair to say that um, neurologists really haven't placed much, much emphasis on prevention of disease. And part of the reason for this is that we, we haven't really known much about how to prevent neurological diseases. And the message um, for neurologists here is that rather than waiting for signs and symptoms of dementia to appear, there is a lot that can be done in middle-aged to reduce a person's risk of developing dementia. Also this month, Helen, you've got a reflection and reaction piece which is looking at uh, the use of alteplase for stroke. And that's interesting because it's 10 years since the NIME study published by the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting um, possibilities there. That's right. Now, alteplase is um, a drug that can actually dis dissolve the clot in a person who has an ischemic stroke. Now, an ischemic stroke is a stroke that's caused by a blood, blood clot as opposed to hemorrhagic stroke where patients have a bleed. And restoring the blood flow um, in the brain of patients who have an ischemic stroke is absolutely crucial to minimise any brain damage. Despite the fact that it, it can dramatically increase recovery from stroke symptoms by up to about 50%, and it's also very cost effective. It's not wi widely used at all. It's been estimated that only about 4 to 8% of stroke patients actually receive the treatment. So this um, reflection and reaction article is written by um, three um, key stroke researchers, Pat Lydon, Ken Lees and Stephen da Davis. And in this article, they discuss the reasons why the uptake of alteplase is so low. Now, one of the reasons is that alteplase can only be given in a very, very narrow um, time window after the stroke. The original um, NINS trial showed that it was effective up to three hours after stroke. But studies since then have suggested that it might be effective up to six hours after stroke. And several trials are ongoing um, to look at extending the time window of treatment. I mean, the authors conclude that it's no longer justifiable for a, a doctor to stand at the bedside of a stroke patient lamenting the lack of a neurologist to administer alteplase. But instead, basic stroke training should be mandatory for all physicians treating patients with, with acute stroke. And finally, Helen, just brief mention of a review about dystonia. First of all, tell me what dystonia is. Well, dystonia is a movement disorder that's characterised by abnormal muscle contractions that can force certain parts of the body into abnormal postures. For example, in cervical dystonia, this forces the head to turn in one direction. And then also in um, blepharospasm, 
this is forced involuntary um, closure of the eyes. And in this review, Howard Geyer and Susan Bressman from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, they discuss their approach to um, the diagnosis of patients with dystonia, as well as the importance of classi classifying dystonia so that patients can have access to appropriate treatment, counselling and more reliable prognosis. And um, we also have a follow-up review um, in next month's issue looking at the treatment of dystonia. That concludes this week's Lancet podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.